Halt. Let me see your papers. What is this little booth? It wasn't here this morning. This little booth? It's a border crossing. I set it up this morning. I'm a border patrol guard now. You can't do that. My house is right over there. Yet that's what you all say. All? All who? Bloody immigrants with your strange food and your bizarre customs never bother to learn our language, do you? Stealing our jobs and mucking up our welfare system? Pirating cable so you can watch foreign programs from your homeland like Bachelorette and Master Chef, Causing long lines at government offices because you can't read the English language signs telling you you're standing in the wrong line. And the strange foods you eat like pancakes and burger so that when you get a massive infarction from all the grease clogging your arteries, I can't get in to see my own doctor about my sinus infection because some alien like you is having a bypass. Yeah, but I live here. I just need to go another few hundred yards to my driveway. What part of border crossing don't you understand, Mohammed or Pablo or whatever your name is? Uh, wait, no, probably all of it. Not much facility with English phrases, am I right? Well, what's to stop me from setting up my own border crossing to keep you from getting to where you live? You? <laughs> How could you possibly have your own border crossing? You're a, a... You're... You're... You know, I never really thought about that. So can I pass through now? If you give me some of those Cheetos, yeah. Ugh, take the whole bag. So what's the big lesson here? What is the big takeaway? Maybe it's that borders are arbitrarily drawn lines that start to define our identities, or maybe it's... Maybe it's mm, Cheetos. Here's a show about borders. And now, the minute the Berlin Wall came down, he traveled to Meriden, Colin McEnroe. So I don't know when you're listening to this show, but the uh, the show is going to air for the first time on the day before the Brexit vote in Great Britain. And, you know, for that reason, boundaries are kind of interesting. Really, the Brexit vote, when you get down to it, is a vote about boundaries. Uh, the, in the EU, there's this notion that it's good if uh, people and capital and commerce can move around across borders very opportunistically. I don't know if you've been to Europe lately. I I remember studying Alsace-Lorraine about 90 million times in European history. Uh, then I wrote a bike through it without even <laughs> knowing that I had done that because then everything's so fluid over there. Well, not everybody likes that, right? And that's very much what the Brexit vote is about. For a lot of people in Great Britain, there's this notion of bloody immigrants. And one of the reasons I think you could argue that Great Britain is, is uh, overwrought about this is because it's an island nation. It's very used to the notion that its borders aren't really fungible. There's a bloody ocean out there. In a lot of ways, this is about how borders affect the psychology of people, uh, how borders affect their own perceptions of where they live. I might add parenthetically that one of the land borders in the United Kingdom that's kind of interesting is Scotland. And there's a whole game scenario where if uh, the leave vote prevails in the Brexit vote that Scotland may make another attempt to withdraw from the United Kingdom so it can go back into the European Union. So anyway, there's lots of really good reasons uh, to be talking about borders today. We're going to start with U.S. state borders. Uh, and joining us is Mark Stein, playwright and author of the book, How the States Got Their Shapes, uh, which was also turned into a TV series on the History Channel. Also with us, Victoria Johnson, a cartographer from McFadden in Washington, D.C., wrote a piece uh, that uh, attracted our attention also on The All, one of our favorite online publications. So I guess maybe I'll ask you both the same question, but Mark, I'll start with you. I'm assuming that you can't go to a cocktail party or a dinner party anymore and mention 
this book and 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 your interest without being besieged by questions, usually from people who want to know something very specific about their environments. What kinds of things do people ask you? I must say that when I go to parties and I end up becoming the most boring person in the room because once I'm asked, I don't stop. Uh, I, I get all kinds of questions, but actually uh, one that I don't get, but I think uh, ties in very much to what you were just saying about the Brexit vote and commerce with borders, is that one of our state borders, that being the boundary between Pennsylvania and New York, which was subject to all kinds of questions back in the day as to what constitutes a line of latitude, whether it's a line or a band and kind of old-time interpretations of, of latitude that that Pennsylvania and New York were disputing had to do with commerce, in my opinion, at least, in this respect, that before the Constitution, we were under the Articles of Confederation, we did not have something called the Commerce Clause, which meant that the federal government regulates interstate commerce. And in New York, although they were talking about, they were not yet sure they could do this, they were talking about a canal that would connect Lake Erie to the Hudson River and, in effect, turn all the Great Lakes into highways of commerce that would flow through this canal to the Hudson. It's the Erie Canal. And they wanted to make sure, when they were disputing with Pennsylvania where their boundary was, since there was not yet any interstate commerce clause, that it was all in New York, that Pennsylvania couldn't mess this up or hone in on this. So one of our state lines is very much connected to the kind of issues you just mentioned with the Brexit dispute. We should say that all of these state boundaries really do uh, materially become about commerce now. I mean, uh, America has turned into uh, at least 48, we're sort of like a, a line of 48 contiguous gas stations that are posting their prices, except now it's, here's our tax rate, uh, here's our property tax rate, here's our business incentives. So Maryland is really completely different from Connecticut. Uh, you should absolutely come here. It's like a different country. So these state uh, boundaries, which we, as you'll hear in this segment, some of them either drawn kind of arbitrarily or for fairly bizarre reasons, uh, now do kind of dictate the shape of commerce uh, here in the United States. Victoria Johnson, I I know what it's like to be at a cocktail party and here there's a cartographer over there. Everybody flocks to her right away and starts barraging her with questions. What kinds of questions do you get asked? Well, the first question that everyone asks is, hasn't everything already been mapped? (laughs) And the answer to that is sort of, I guess. But the landscape is always changing, whether it's, you know, from an earthquake or a volcano or new land being created, man-made, but also there's a lot of other uh, applications of cartography. After this interview, I'm not going to go back to my sextant and parchment on a giant desk somewhere. It's, I sit at a regular computer at a desk and interpret data from a geographic perspective using GIS, the Geographic Information Systems. And then I take my findings and I map them in an aesthetically pleasing way. So it's sort of like geography, but combined with computer science and graphic design. All right, so let's let's get into some specific cases, and and I think uh, it might be interesting. Each of you can take a different part of Kentucky. How about if we do that? Because Mark Stein, one of the things I think a lot of people, per Victoria's previous comment, you know, isn't this all kind of settled science? Well, it's not even necessarily settled science in in, in the way that you might think. Here in the United States, Kentucky and Indiana were arguing about part of the Ohio River at least as recently as like nineteen eighty, nineteen eighty one, right? Yes. Uh, in fact, most of the boundary disputes today uh, in this era are, do have to do with water. The Ohio River is particularly subject to dispute 
because generally when a river is the boundary, the boundary goes down the middle of the channel. It happens in the case of the Ohio River, where it was determined as a boundary in the colonial era as a, the western boundary of Virginia, which at the time was not the Virginia we know today. It included Kentucky and it included West Virginia. So it came right up to what is today Ohio. And the entire Ohio River was uh, part of Virginia, so that places uh, like Indiana and Ohio often get into disputes uh, because they really only come up to the to the edge of, edge of the river. Um, uh, sometimes if there's a little island, uh, as there is down uh, below Bloomington, Indiana, Evansville, Indiana, silt will build up and land will accrete, sort of in the way Victoria was saying, that land will change, and then there's dispute over whether this land is in Indiana or whether it belongs to uh, Kentucky, things like that. So uh, the minute uh, Josh Nalea, our producer, started talking about this show, I said, oh, Connecticut Notch, the notch up of the uh, the northern Connecticut border. So there's a completely legitimate explanation for this. But I also know that there's like 19 folkloric and mythic uh, explanations for this. But explain to us why, in fact, we really do have a, a little notch at the top of our state. Connecticut devolved from the colony of Massachusetts. We don't like to use that term, Mark. Okay, whatever term you'd like to plug in. And uh, Massachusetts itself was an amalgam of the Plymouth Colony and the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So when you go all the way back to the colonial uh, charters creating those two colonies and try to figure out, so what's the southern border of what became Massachusetts Colony? It's really subject to a lot of debate and was at the time when Connecticut wanted to become its own colony. Massachusetts sent their original surveyors to do it. Connecticut said that's eight miles too far south. Long battle ensued. The reason that uh, Massachusetts was locating it where it was, was it was trying to preserve certain towns that had been in Massachusetts that would now be in Connecticut. Eventually, the townspeople wanted to be in Connecticut because, as you mentioned earlier, the taxes are lower. Uh, So eventually, they got to be in Connecticut. But in compensation, Connecticut ceded to Massachusetts a chunk of land around what I believe are called the Congaman Lake, yes. the Congaman Lakes, yes. which uh, is that chunk of land in the uh, northern border that's bitten out to accommodate the insistence of Connecticut and those residents to be part of Connecticut. Right. I believe we also got Rebecca Lobo as part of that deal. Uh, they're from Southwick. <laughs> so just to stay with us for a second. So having grown up in Connecticut, I've heard all kinds of alternative explanations. And, and I'm wondering if... There's a consistency to this because I, like, I almost feel like reading your book and knowing what I know about that particular story that there are tropes. One of the tropes might be the drunk surveyors, yes. right? I mean, th- does yes. that, that, that comes up a lot, I assume. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, in a number of places where there's irregularities that, that seem uh, difficult to explain, I never found any evidence. Well, they're certainly with drunk surveyors, I suppose, when you're out in the <laughs> wild for that long. But I never found any evidence of a line that was, because once they survey, it has to be accepted, that was accepted because it was drunkenly drawn. In fact, I never found any evidence of a line submitted that was drunkenly drawn. The southern border of uh, Kentucky went out to a certain point and then later was corrected. Uh, and there are a number of places on the map where you'll you'll see that there jogs where they were correcting what the original surveyor did. I look back at that, and back in those times, they were working with a compass, two sticks and a chain, and the stars. And I think, wow, 
That's a pretty good job. Yeah, they were off by a bit, as they later learned, but they did a pretty good job. But never, never were they veering off because of inebriation. Maybe it is, is a good time to tell the story uh, of Sidney Edgerton. This guy, you know, you could do a, like a whole movie about him or something. He's sort of this amazing person. And I gather that in a lot of ways, Montana sort of forgot about him. He was like, he was like there were like no statues or anything like that. There, I've read a few articles about him recently where they're starting to get uh, interested in him again. But, I mean, for people who wonder... If they, if you look at the border of uh, Idaho, I think it's like forty-five miles of the border uh, abuts Canada. It's like this tiny little thing that kind of pokes up there and nudges uh, Canada. And this is very much, uh, much has to do with this one kind of remarkable guy. Tell us, uh, Mark, about Sidney Edgerton. Right. And by the way, if Sidney Edgerton had gotten entirely his way, the top of uh, Idaho would be even skinnier. Uh, Sidney Edgerton was a congressman uh, from Ohio. Uh, he then was a, appointed to a judgeship in the territory. Then it was called the Idaho Territory. But very soon after, that massive territory divided. And he came to Washington on behalf of the people who lived in what is now Montana. And by uh, the writings of his own daughter and elsewhere, but I take the daughter as the most credible source, this was a man who knew how to pack. And packed, not in his case, but in the lining of his coat, were, I believe it was $2,000 worth of gold nuggets. Uh, there were gold mines in this region between Idaho and Montana. And he said, yes, he was bringing them to show members of Congress what the gold was, as if, A, they didn't know what gold was, or B, that they didn't know gold was there. Of course, they knew all of that. But the other thing that happened, and I can only guess how this gold played a role in this, is that the Committee on Territories had drawn up lines to create new states up there, Nothing like what we see now, but the result was that they created this state of Montana that, after Edgerton's visit, just sort of bulled its way into what is Idaho in that big amorphous area in the West. Not really amorphous because most of it follows uh, the crest of the Rocky Mountains, and uh, only up near the top, because of some water up there, did Congress depart from what Edgerton wanted and do a little straight line north to Canada. But this is one of two examples that I know of where a single individual significantly impacted on a state line, presumably through money. Right. And yeah. Well, uh, and this, but this guy, he is amazing and he's fearless. And I mean, he's, you know, he uh, goes through all kinds of terrifying country and, and it gets to inter- interesting scrapes. But Mark, I also yeah. sense there's probably a certain amount of just sort of push and pull and negotiation. Yeah, maybe you got to bribe somebody. But also my sense is it's Idaho also saying, you know what, we don't have that much farmland. Like They got all kinds of flat farmland out there. So give us some farmland at the bottom. Maybe we'll give up a little uh, at the top. Actually, the lines that were originally drawn, they would have had all that farmland uh, down around the Snake River. Uh, yeah, they, they, they lost. <laughs> all right. So, um, Victoria, at the beginning, I was talking about how, well, island nations, you know, a lot of it is just sort of a done deal, right? Uh, you got an island. It's sitting out in the middle of the water. What is there to argue about, really? Well, of course, within islands, uh, there are lots of things to argue about. And certainly within multi-island areas, there are lots of things to argue about. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce any Hawaiian name, so I'm going to not even try to say the name uh, of this place in Hawaii. But uh, tell us this story, uh, a story that involves, uh, among other things, uh, uh, what was called a a leprosy settlement. One of the counties in Hawaii is only populated by sufferers of Hansen's disease, or as it is more commonly known, leprosy. There are about 90 people there now, but it was 
founded in 1905 when leprosy was more of a problem, and it was a forced settlement. So people with leprosy were forced to move to Hawaii, which if you're going to be forced to move somewhere, Hawaii is yeah. probably okay. But this, this county is a tiny area on the north side of uh, Molokai Island, and it is uh, just a, a little area that is completely isolated from the rest of the island. There's a 2,000-foot cliff separating it. You can only get to it by boat, and it is still there. As I said, there's about 90 people still living there, and once they all die off of natural causes, leprosy has been cured, it will return to Maui County. But it's almost like a little principality, right? Like if you want to visit it, you have to get permission if you're not one of those people? Yes, you have to have official permission. There's only one local official. It's a, a sheriff kind of chosen from the population. And it's it's quite peaceful. It's, you know, a lovely place, except for the fact that people were forced to live there. Um, you know, as long as we're talking about this, I mean, you know, one of the things, uh, Victoria, that we were sort of saying at the beginning is that cartographer's work is, is not done. Uh, perhaps it will never be done. And that one thing that happens is that from time to time, people announce that they've formed these kind of tiny new uh, micro countries, these um, these things that are these sort of self-styled, uh, well, sea land is, is maybe, so we could do an entire show about sea land, but are the, there are these kind of little wacky, I hesitate to call them fake countries, but they have to be dealt with somehow, right? Yeah, there's a ton of micronations, and they're really easy to start because all you have to do is, you know, plant a flag and say, well, this is mine now. So we should mention that Sealand in, in particular was this uh, this place which um, was this guy kind of declared himself, the I, I forget who, who actually started it, but there have actually been armed confrontations about what's basically, it's like a platform out in the middle of the ocean, right? It's not even necessarily a piece of land. Yeah, it's a decommissioned gunning platform off the southeastern coast of England. After the war, uh, a bunch of pirate radio broadcasters squatted on the island. And then in the late 60s, this guy, Paddy Roy Bates, took over. He threw the pirate radio broadcasters out, and though he brought his own radio equipment, he never started broadcasting. He just decided to set up a country. And the platform, which is smaller than an American football field, it issues stamps, currency, you can get passports. It's its own little thing. So, uh, yeah, and, and I should say that in 1978, there was uh, a guy named Alexander Aschenbach who actually uh, made himself the self-styled prime minister of Sealand. Uh, he hired uh, German and Dutch mercenaries to actually attack Sealand with speedboats and jet skis and helicopters. And there was this sort of armed confrontation about this little sort of, uh, as we say, it's just a little platform, uh, a little piece of, of nothingness. So, uh, Victoria, one question that I had, you know, we started this conversation, as I said, uh, about the fact that the work of the cartographer is never done, it never will be done. Uh, as we look to the heavens, um, well, there's this moon place up there where we, uh, every once in a while, manage to get to. Is this? Is there going to be cartography work up there? Are map makers going to have to figure out, I don't know exactly borders and boundaries, but somehow or other, we're going to have to understand that piece of real estate just the way we've mapped every piece of real estate here on Earth? Well, yeah, stellar cartography is a field. The moon has been intricately mapped Mars, if you you know look online, NASA and, and other entities have put out maps of Mars that show not only where the, the rovers and the, um, the little landing vehicles have landed, 
but where Matt Damon in The Martian would have traveled. <laughs> uh, well, the, yeah, that's important to know, you know, for, for future. Well, if I do tourism there anyway, I'm going to want to know. Uh, I want to I want to take the Martian tour, you know, the Matt Damon <laughs> tour. Well, listen, uh, thanks very much to both of you. Well, we're going to uh, take a break here. We're going to come back with uh, yet more conversations about borders. Thanks so much to Mark Stein, playwright and author of the book, How the States Got Their Shapes, and Victoria Johnson, cartographer from McFadden in Washington, D.C. We'll take a little break, and we'll be back with more talk of borders. I draw the line. Fine. I draw the Whether you know the name Sykes-Picot or not, you're probably familiar with that argument that the modern Middle East is a product of Western imperialist border makers, Europeans who created countries in a manner they found convenient with little regard for the realities on the ground. I know for a fact that I've said this many times, saying it as though I knew what I was talking about, uh, which I've realized as of today, I don't. But if you want to hear it explained in the most comic possible way, here's uh, John Stewart on The Old Daily Show talking to a mythical British border creator played by a pith-helmeted John Oliver. Maybe it's time we just went back to where a lot of these problems started. With a British man 100 years ago drawing a map of a place he'd never been to, filled with people he'd never met, forming new countries with no attention paid to ethnic or religious tensions. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Sir Archibald Mapsalot III. Pleasure to be here, John. Now, uh, what's all the bother about? Uh, Archibald, it's just, you know, the borders that you drew, well, they, they've proven to be a little unstable and somewhat controversial. If really? Not, not, not a problem. We'll just draw them again. No uh, right, well... No problem. <laughs> yep. If I know Arabs, John, and believe me, I do not, <laughs> they like nothing more than alcohol after a good Western intervention. Why didn't you touch Saudi Arabia, by well, the way? Why, why would did I you... touch Saudi Arabia, Jonathan? They're a good, decent, oil-producing people. See, this is not... Look, there's nothing the Arab respects, John, more <laughs> than a strong, steady white hand drawing arbitrary lines twixt their ridiculous tribal allegiances. But that... All right. So that's probably about the depth of my understanding of this so far, too. So we decided to talk to somebody who actually knows something about something, and that is uh, Nick Danforth. He is a Middle East policy expert, a writer for The Atlantic, also the creator of the Afternoon Map blog. Uh, if you would like your understanding of this enlarged even further, then we're going to try to enlarge it right now. I would recommend that you go to the Afternoon Map blog. But Nicholas Danforth, thanks uh, so much for joining us today. Maybe just for fun, uh, since the name Sykes-Picot does come up a, a, a lot, who were Sykes and Picot? That's actually, first of all, thank you for the very charitable introduction. I hope I'll come across as knowing what I'm talking about here. Uh, yeah, so that's a good place to start because the, the kind of Daily Show version of this uh, presents Sykes and Picot as these kind of prototypical European imperialists who knew nothing about the land they were uh, shaping. And Mark Sykes, in particular, was a British diplomat who, you know, by the standards of the day, was something of an expert on the region. He'd spent uh, several weeks riding around on horseback in Kurdish parts of Anatolia, drawing a, you know, remarkably condescending, but actually very detailed uh, portrait of the Kurdish tribes in the region. Uh, and so from the very first point of starting out, it's not that these people didn't necessarily know anything about the region. It's just that some of what they knew or thought they knew might have been problematic. So this this line gets drawn in, in 1916, right? So, right, and I guess that's the second part. Uh, Sykes and Pico 
British and French diplomat, respectively, sit down in 1916 in the middle of World War I. Their countries are allies, but they're somewhat uncomfortable allies. They're a little worried that after they defeat the Ottoman Empire, you know, they might have a bit of a falling out over who's going to actually get the Ottoman territory that they've conquered in the Middle East. And so in order to assuage these concerns and focus on the fight against Germany, they take a map of the region and they actually, right, they draw a border, they draw some borders on the map, they sign their names at the corner of it, and this agreement in 1916 is the Sykes-Picot Accord. So one of the things that you've argued in, in uh, numerous articles as well as on your blog is that um, not that this wasn't kind of maybe uh, an imperialist gesture or at least a line drawn by people who didn't live there, not that that wasn't the case, but that the argument that that's the reason there's always going to be instability, that's the reason that the wrong people are grouped with the wrong people and, and that, that all these uh, ethnicities and nationalities uh, seem to be in, in constant friction, that the argument that it was all caused by that is at minimum an overstatement. Exactly. And that's, I guess there are two points to make right off the offset. When you see the actual borders that they drew in 1916, and when you see the borders that emerge that we recognize on the map today, they're actually very different. Uh, and a lot happens between 1916 and when the borders actually get laid down five or so years later. And that when you look at that process, when you look at the different proposals that people came up with, the different ideas that they tried, the different ways that they shaped and reshaped uh, their plans for the region over this period, what you see is actually none of the other ideas that were talked about, none of the other ideas that were proposed would have turned out that much better, and that many of them would have actually carried the seeds for some conflicts that are very similar to the ones that we've seen today. Um, one of the things that you mentioned is that in 1919, uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, <laughs> it's kind of laughable, you know, if Sykes and Foucault were kind of, you know, not the right answer. He decided that a theologian named Henry King and an industrialist named Charles Crane, they they could fix the whole thing, right? right. <laughs> and that's exactly the irony, that Sykes and Foucault, for whatever, you know, the problems with the plan they came up with, you know, at least had some background in the region. Uh, it was ironically the Henry King and Charles Crane who come in with actually much less background in the region, as you point out. Right. Uh, a theologian from Oberlin and a plumbing parts magnate uh, who, in their own way, come up with what's supposed to be a much more idealistic plan that Wilson actually sends them out with the very idea that, you know, we can't trust these imperialists to draw borders. They're going to draw them in accordance with their own interests. So let's look at the region and try to figure out what the real borders are that will make people there happy. Uh, and so to their credit, they talk to a lot of people. They ask people what uh, kinds of borders they would like. And what they discover is actually people there have radically conflicting ideas. So for example, you know, they talk to a lot of Christians in Lebanon who are very insistent that their country should be separate from Syria. And they talk to a lot of uh, Muslim Arab nationalists in Syria who are very insistent that Lebanon shouldn't be independent. And they are looking at them in the most idealistic and in some ways uninformed way possible, try to reconcile these kinds of contradictions actually in a way shows more clearly than anything else why there was no good way to draw these borders. And so I'm going to oversimplify some of your observations, but it seems as though one of the points that you've made uh, again and again is kind of haters are going to hate and grabbers are going to grab. And no matter where you draw the lines, you're going to create situations where somebody's going to have his or their 
eyes on something else, right? You're going to maybe try to get most of the Sunnis over here and maybe the, some of the Shiites over here and maybe some of the Kurds uh, over here. But you still, no matter where you draw the line, are effectively creating a prize, uh, a brass ring someplace else that one group might want to grab away from another. Exactly. Exactly. And when you look at, you know, everyone says in the Middle East, foreign powers drew the borders, and that's why you've had so much conflict. Uh, you look at the Balkans, another former Ottoman territory, uh, there people were largely left to their own devices in drawing borders. And the conflict lasted up until today. Similarly, in you know, Western Europe might actually be the best example. You know, France and Germany, when left to their own devices, had a hell of a time trying to figure out where the correct border was. It wasn't like you could just get a commission to go in, look at Alsace-Lorraine, and decide if the people there were French or German. They fought a couple world wars about it, and at the end they stopped fighting, not because they realized they'd gotten the correct answer, but because they realized that trying to get that correct answer was actually only going to lead to more fighting. Right. One of the one of the other guests on our show today, Mark Stein, he didn't say this, but he would say that some of the older older borders in the United States are the product of the French and Indian War. Uh, that these are things that they sort of get fought out and people stop fighting at a certain point, and that's where your border is. And the idea that in an enlightened state of mind, uh, you could come in and do a better job, kind of ignores the reality is that people tend to sort of believe in things and accept things if they're going to do that at all when it's sort of been thrashed out to a point where everybody's too exhausted to change it. Exactly. So one of the um, questions or one of the th- observations that you make, and I think it's an important one, is maybe it's not so much who draws the border or where the b- border gets drawn, but how people act uh, once the borders get drawn or what the purpose is in the first place, particularly if it's an imperialist or colonialist power. And, and a point that you've made that has occurred to me in other situations, too, is a typical thing that you see happen. And we saw it happen in Rwanda, and I think you see it in, to a certain degree uh, in the old Iraq, is you prop up one ethnic group over another. And sometimes you prop up the minority and therefore weaker ethnic group. You make an alliance with them because the other group of people are probably going to be your big problem. Uh, You know, whoever you're going to have an argument with, it's going to be the people who you as a colonial power see as more numerous and and more strident. So I'll let you pick up the narrative from there. No, and that's a very good point to bring up, that part of the frustration when people blame uh, imperial-drawn borders for all the problems in the region is, ironically, it actually downplays some of the more insidious things that imperialist powers did to create the problems in the region. And my argument would be that, given how complex and diverse these societies were, given how intermixed the populations were, any way that you drew the borders, you would have had people from different ethnic and religious groups living together in the same country. Uh, That's the case all around the world. But precisely as you say, the issue is then how do you deal with those groups within the new country that you founded? Uh, and this is exactly where the policies of the, both the British and French imperialists, both consciously playing these games by propping up minority ethnic groups, Sunnis in Iraq for the British. You know, the French made a point of bringing Alawites in Syria into the army, uh, cultivating them as a minority. The Christians in Lebanon were another example of the French playing favorites with minority politics. That this policy of divide and rule within whatever borders that you had was particularly dangerous and had a you know, very harmful legacy. And at the same time, it was also the style of imperial rule, which you know, very much relied on force, military force, rather than uh, consensus building or clearly democratic politics. You know, you look at the way the French repressed uh, Syrian revolt in 1925. You know, they shelled Damascus. It actually looks a lot like what Assad is doing today. 
the British, you know, British Air Force bombed rebellious Kurdish tribes, used poison gas against rebels uh, in order to maintain their rule in Iraq. You know, it's policies like these rather than the borders that I think are important to look at when trying to understand some of the problems in the region today. Um, one of the questions, I suppose, that, that hangs in the air is, I mean, we really don't know how the latest round of struggle is going to shake out in the Middle East and whether or not um, there's going to be a need uh, to reapportion something or change something. Um, imagine that there is. Imagine that, that, that Syria collapses somehow and that looking around some hypothetical or imagine, imaginary group of people try to make a, a decision about what to do. Do we, do we hand the magic marker to uh, people who live there? Do we hand it to the to the UN? What would be your recommendation? I mean, what's the best way to avoid future levels of friction that that flare up into full blown conflagrations? Right, that's a good question because yeah, it's easy to talk about history uh, and harder to draw lessons for that from that going forward. I mean, certainly one point would be you know right, nothing in the historical experience suggests that it's always wrong to draw new borders. Suggests that there's never any benefit to changing things. You know, in the case of former Yugoslavia, after you know a great deal of debate, people decided that creating an independent Kosovo would be the best way forward, and maybe that was the right decision. The historical argument would simply be that we shouldn't see this as a panacea. We shouldn't see this as something that's going to be easy or something that's going to magically solve. Uh, the problems in the region. The second would just be that, right, I mean, in a way, the best set of borders are the ones that people on the ground agree with, that people on the ground support. And that, right, it's not a matter of handing a magic marker to someone in particular. It's a matter of working together with everyone who has a stake in this and trying to actually come up with uh, a set of solutions that works. And isn't one of the problems here that anytime you want to draw new borders, what you're coming up against is kind of stasis uh, against the the fact that people, if people have lived with any set of borders uh, that have existed for multiple generations, no matter who drew them, you know, if Martians came out and down and drew them, if you've lived with them for a few hundred years, you start to identify with those borders and you start to regard them uh, as, as sacrosanct. So even if you feel they were drawn the wrong way, that doesn't necessarily mean that the people on the ground are going to go, oh, yeah. That was drawn, drawn by a French guy and an English guy. So let's move it now. Uh, they, they've been living with that reality for that's what they think their homeland is now. Uh, and that's certainly one of the things you see in Syria, right? One of the few things that both the regime and the opposition agrees on is that they should maintain the territorial integrity of the country. You know, they're fighting about who gets to control that uh, coherent territory, not about how do we redraw it. So uh, let's uh, kick the last tripwire here. Obviously, uh, every day uh, people talk about what to do about a Palestinian state. Is there, from a geographer's point of view, is there from the lessons of geography, uh, anything, any input that that you can make into that that whole question? To bring this back to the beginning, in some ways, the whole Israel-Palestine conflict is one of the best rebuttals to this idea that the problem was they just didn't pay enough attention when they were drawing borders. You know, if, you, if there's any place on earth where you've had a number of earnest attempts to come up with the perfect set of borders, you know, from British plans in the 1930s to more recent international negotiations, there's no lack of proposed borders. The problem is that neither side will accept any of the proposals. And that, right, I mean, to the point you made earlier, that people don't agree, people want, you know, more land. There are fundamental disputes here that... Uh, no set of borders will reconcile. 
Um, we've been talking to Nicholas Danforth. He is a Middle East policy expert, a writer for The Atlantic, also the uh, creator of the Afternoon Map blog. So I guess we don't get to say this anymore. We don't get to say, oh, well, the European imperialists uh, caused all this trouble. What, we, what can we say? We can say they caused some of the trouble, right? Right. You can still say they caused all the trouble, but just for different reasons than <laughs> borders they drew. Good point. It wasn't caused by Sharpies. It was right, caused exactly. by something else. All right. Thanks so much for talking to us. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Stay with us. You're about to hear why walls make people want to dig tunnels. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Tyone Wolf. Our interns are Esther Shitu, Adriana Smith, and Katie Burns. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Eric Trump. For show pages, articles, and aerial photographs of the border between here and now, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, how many ways can you tell the Cinderella story? And now, back to Colin. All right. For our final segment, we're going to talk about actual walls and fences. And to do that, uh, we have uh, one of the leading experts in, in this. That's Elizabeth Vallée. She is a professor uh, at the University of Quebec, and she's the author of Borders, Fences, and Walls. Uh, first of all, welcome to the conversation. Hi. Bonjour. Bonjour. Thank you. <laughs> and I assume if you're sitting there in Quebec City, you're sitting right near a, a big wall. They've got ramparts there uh, dating back to the 17th century, right? Absolutely. Although I am in Montreal, but we used to have uh, the city walls too. So yeah, not, not too far from there. <laughs> All right. So uh, the American poet uh, wrote, before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense, something there is that doesn't love a wall. That's Robert Frost. And he's basically sort of talking about the fact that um, although there's an old saying, good fences make good neighbors, there's also kind of a sense that we we object to walls, that, that there are things about us that rebel against walls, that want to uh, tear down walls. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So one thing that you cover in your book, and your book was – uh, published before the rise of Donald Trump. But even so, um, after the Cold War, you would have thought, well, we probably would be getting less and less interested in walls. And that was true for a while. But but first of all, overall, since the, um, the, the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall, really thousands of miles of walls and fences have been added internationally, right? Absolutely. Uh, I do kilometers, but to give you an idea, it's 40,000 kilometers that, of walls that are being built as we speak in the world, which is just about the, the Earth uh, circumference. So it's quite a lot. It's, actually, it's twice as more as the number of new borders that were uh, drawn after the end of the Cold War. So, uh, and what was interesting indeed is, uh, and I've just tweeted um, a graph online, so people can check that out on Twitter and on your on your Twitter too, um, is that uh, when we drew the graph, we assumed that indeed after the end of the Cold War, there would be a drop in the number of border fences and border walls in the world. And actually, the drop wasn't that big. And actually, it began climbing back up uh, soon, uh, in the middle of the 1990s. Of course, September 11th kind of triggered the acceleration of that, uh, that trend. But still, the trend was going on before 9-11. And when we began the research, that was kind of something that sounded odd for us. That wasn't what we were um, expecting at all. Um, notwithstanding that, uh, September 11th 
sort of poured some some gasoline into the tank of wall building. It may have been going up starting in the mid '90s, but obviously, and and as your book suggests, not just in places that you might expect to be concerned about things that the United States is concerned about, but for some reason or other, after September 11th, all over the world, in in places far removed from the United States, there was more wall building. Absolutely, uh, you can you can see them in um, Central Asia. Southeastern Asia, a lot in the Middle East, um, between Zimbabwe and Botswana. So really, it's all across the world. And what's interesting is that the, the motives uh, can uh, can be quite different, and that the narratives can be quite different. But at the end, it all comes uh, down to um, walling somebody out or keeping the people in. But no matter what, the idea is to to dissociate yourself from the other. Right. So, and I think we then have to ask ourselves, well, how effective is that? In other words, if that's its strategy, is to keep the other out and keep uh, uh, everybody uh, on the on your side of the wall sort of safe and secure and and not contaminated by the other, does it really work, or does it just create a new incentive to somehow or other get past that wall? They don't work. Uh, and what's interesting is even when you look at uh, some uh, very documented um, arguments, such as the one uh, from IDF in Israel, uh, and they, they state clearly that the, the building of the, the wall uh, uh, in the West Bank um, really um, led uh, terrorism uh, to good numbers to go down. Actually, if you look into it correctly, uh, you will see that the, the political situation had evolved in the same time, that Israel had changed its policy towards uh, the West Bank, and that both both the Fatah and Hamas had um, uh, made kind of a peace that was helping that. So um, the wall may uh, give the appearance that it's working, but when you look into it, actually what they do is they don't deter at all, but they will bring the mafia to the border table. Um, and where people were crossing on their own before, now they need to go with uh, smugglers and coyotes, uh, and mafias come on board, and that's where, you know, violence increase, and people dig tunnels. Uh, you've heard about the last tunnel uh, behind, uh, beneath uh, the, the, the Californian border, which is almost a kilometer long and 15 meters under the ground, so it's a really uh, huge infrastructure. Uh, so people will, will dig tunnels. Uh, you may have I've seen the picture of the, that ramp uh, in uh, Arizona that is uh, going above the fence, and you have a jeep that you know is climbing on the ramp to go on the other side of the border. So there are many ways drones um, that can you know bring um, um, drugs over the border. So definitely, it's not working for that purpose, which would be to prevent people from coming in, and in, it increases violence, definitely. Um, as to make people feel safer, actually, it's not really the case, although it's really um, the aim of the border walls is really to uh, address a domestic audience and make people feel that they, they could be safer because they can see something along their borders. 
Right. It's sort of optics. It, it makes people feel a little bit better. And and so, you know, this once again isn't restricted to the United States. All over the world, uh, people build these walls. I assume, I assume all over the world, these walls can, e- well, relatively easily be circumvented, but probably circumvented in a way that makes it dang- more dangerous for everybody and more sneaky and more surreptitious. Is this just something that's in our natures? I mean, obviously, we've been building walls since well, well, uh, well, since the, the dawn of recorded history, uh, there have been walls. And they always didn't work very well, right? I mean, Genghis Khan didn't have any trouble getting past a wall. <laughs> Absolutely. And the Great Wall of China, by the, the end of its construction, wasn't serving any purposes since the, the barbarian uh, invasions were over. So um, th- there is something vain to the wall. Uh, it's really a, a matter of public relation uh, operations. Sometimes it's based on fear. Uh, most of the time it's based on cons- constructed fear. Um, we were speaking about those walls being built all over the world. If we were to look at India, for instance, India is a, a um, very uh, is trying literally to fence itself in, uh, and it, while building the fence along the Bangladesh border, uh, they are actually fencing the Bangla- Bangladesh out. That dealing with the real social problems that actually led to the construction of the wall, which was fear of radical Islamism, uh, fear of um, illegal immigrants. Uh, so all of this is not resolved by the fence, but is just um, maybe um, um, getting, making them more, uh, more mysterious, uh, not as uh, much seen, so people are more fearful after the construction of the wall than they were before. And you can see that all around the world, but what is new and needs to be mentioned is that more and more democracies are fencing themselves in, and that's something new. It also means that there is a, a type of a, fa- a kind of a failure of uh, the model we had, that we needed to be in a borderless world with peace and, and mutual understanding as we were in the 1990s. So definitely the wall is, is telling us that the, the era of the hippie era, in a sense, of the 1990s, when we thought that we would be in a peaceful world, is over. But indeed, it has never succeeded in preventing people from coming in. So, uh, so we're talking to uh, Elizabeth Valet right now. I have to say one of the more exciting chapters in your book is uh, the one toward the end where the uh, writer talks about how, you know, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars get uh, gets put into these walls or fences and you don't really get anything out of it. I mean, as we're saying, it's not a really effective security tool and then nothing else happens. But this chapter explores there are and this includes the U.S.-Mexico border, some really interesting ways in which the walls are either used for solar collection uh, or uh, or bike sort of bike trails that kind of go up onto the wall or uh, water treatment. I mean, I guess if we have to have walls, it would be nice if they did something other than pretend to keep people out. Absolutely. And there, there is a lot of, um, there are a lot of work, um, architects and artists who are trying to make something out of those artifacts. And you're right, they really cost a lot. And uh, that's something that is not said enough. Um, Per kilometer, it's like one to 4.5 million. Um, the total cost of a fence, like the actual fence uh, in the U.S. has cost uh, $6.4 million. So it's um, per kilometer total. And um, like in Israel, it was $2 billion total for the entire fence. So it's a very 
huge infrastructure, uh, very much close to if we were to build a, f a highway along the border. It's that kind of um, weight for the public finances. Um, and actually, yes, we need to make something out of them. And so you've seen artists painting them, making them disappear, painting them in blue so that they disappear. Um, and uh, and one, another activist from the Sierra Club is collecting the, 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 the ladders that are, at the, at, that are left at the bottom of the wall in, in Bronzeville. So people are using ladders just to go uh, around the wall, and he's using that as a, to make a, an, an artist um, an art uh, creation. So, yes, there is something to be done with them since they really um, uh, isolate and create enclaves and alter ecosystems. So we need to see that globally and maybe make something out of them, definitely. And Ronald Rael is one of those architects who is trying to uh, transform the way we look at the border wall since we are stuck with them. We're going to have to stop now. This has been a fascinating conversation. Elizabeth Fallet's book is uh, Borders, Fences, and Walls. It's a collection uh, of essays about about those topics all over the world. What you wind up feeling at the end is that what we have internationally is kind of a failure of imagination, uh, that uh, if that's what our goal is, building these things doesn't seem to help very much. And we haven't thought of the other thing. We haven't thought of the thing that does work, the set of integrated policies and physical infrastructures that somehow or other accomplishes the things we need to accomplish. All right. Well, this has been a fascinating show for me. I hope it has been for you. Special thanks to Josh Nalea. <laughs> if you follow this show closely, you may have noticed we've had a little trouble getting shows to work the way we want them to lately, but this one certainly did. Uh, some great guests here today. We're going to be back tomorrow with a show about the persistence of the Cinderella myth. Thanks to everybody who helped out today, and we'll see you tomorrow for Cinderella. That is the last shovelful. I finally burrowed my way out of the United States and into... Welcome back, Kion. Welcome back? Yeah. Looks like you dug yourself all the way back. Crap. Your triceps look amazing, though. Huh. They do. Thanks. Good to be back.